Welcome back to the Global Digital Banker. My name is Adele Grissaf and this is IFI Group's Insight-backed podcast, focused on key trends, thought leadership and best practice within the fast-growing and dynamic world of digital banking. The episode this week highlights some of the key takeouts from Lendit Fintech USA held earlier this month in San Francisco. Eleanor Page, RFI Group Commercial Director, caught up with a few of the key speakers from across the two days to discuss disruption, innovation within the industry, the growing importance of financial inclusion, and a deep dive into artificial intelligence beyond the buzz. Guests include Nicholas Kopp, US CEO at N26, Cyril Sharon, Managing Director for North and Latin America at RFI Group, and Kush Tawari, Senior Director Market Planning at LexisNexis Risk Solutions, and Ray Peloso, Principal and CEO from Catabat. Here at the Lendit Fintech Conference in San Francisco, and delighted to be joined by RFI's Managing Director of North and Latin America, Cyril Chiron, and Nicholas Kopp, US CEO of N26. They've just wrapped up a panel session at the conference, so we're going to debrief on some of the key takeouts of that discussion. But before we start, Nick, please tell us about N26's US launch and the history of what has become the world's fastest growing mobile-only bank to date. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having us here. Um, it's been a great panel. Thanks, Siri. Uh, for N26, we're a mobile bank based in Europe. Uh, so we are currently operating in 17 European markets, have over 850,000 customers, and only launched with our product back in 2015, and, and have really built a bank technology infrastructure from scratch from Europe into the US market this year. Wow, big initiative, big initiative. Thanks, Nick. Siri, you just chaired the panel session. It was titled Digital Only Banks Moving Beyond Customer Experience. For you, what was the key takeout of this future-looking session? So a lot of things were talked about. We talked about partnership, we talked about offering personalized and interacting with different customers in a different way. But the main things that, for me, was the main takeout is regardless what product you have or the way you interact with a customer is you need to serve the customer the way they want. So if they want mobile first, it should be on mobile. If they want branch, it should be on the branch. So that would be the main takeout that I have. Excellent. Thanks for that, Siri. Nick, during the session, the panel talked a lot about customer experience. From an N26 perspective, when you're building out your platforms, how do you think about customer experience and what technologies, processes and functionality do you see as underpinning that great digital customer experience? For us at N26, it's really the mobile phone, which is a key outlet for us um, to communicate with customers for customers to get their service. We have a fully mobile first platform, so our whole company is built to cater towards one outlet, which is mobile. And we've done that very rigorously. So mobile for us means real time. You get all your services, spending alerts, everything real time. To do that on the back end, build technology that allows for all these services, which put us apart from some of the more traditional banks, uh, which have an older technology stack, maybe since we've built everything from scratch in the last couple of years. Another uh, big factor for us in mobile first is simplicity. It just needs to be easy, simple, and transparent to use. With a very strong user research design team, and their mission every day is to speak to customers, to see how customers use our product and to make that product better and simpler to use. And then third, just to wrap up, is personalization. We talked about a little bit about that series in the panel. Personalization is, is really the, the future trend, in my opinion, um, in retail banking because 
with the technology available today, AI being one of these buzzwords yeah. throwing around quite frequently. Yeah. All day long. <laughs> <laughs> All day long. Yeah. <laughs> you can really personalize and customize your retail banking experience towards that very mobile phone that the customer is holding. We know how you spend, we know where you spend, and we know a little bit who you are. By processing that information through AI and other technologies, we can actually offer you very personalized, customized service at a large scale. Like Even though we have 850,000 customers, we can still provide the the service personalized and that's sort of the last trend as part of mobile first that I see uh, being very big. And that's really interesting I was doing an interview earlier today where we were talking about AI and now really is the time that there is the ability to really use this data and as you say make personalization scalable that's one of the great use cases and it's interesting that you say you know you have built your own technology stack from scratch you're not bound by legacy infrastructure and we hear a lot about that topic at events like Lend It Fintech. However, what we also see is most digital banks are quite monoline in their offering. They're choosing to apply those advantages to doing just one or maybe sometimes two products very well, an unbundled offering, if you like. Do you see that focus on single products or just a couple of products as a limiter to further growth and adoption of digital banking or mobile banking. And for you, for N26, what is the next horizon to continue that development? It's a very good question. And and this is actually what N26 does and where we're sort of trying to head in the future is being that ecosystem around our platform. So I do agree actually with your statement when you say having just one service that you do particularly well is, uh, is definitely a great entry point and an ability to gain customers and gain scale to a certain extent. But I think to really bring your offering for consumers to the next level, you need to have more. We build an ecosystem through partnerships and in-house products around our platform. So we're building that through partners uh, such as TransferWise, where we partner with TransferWise on a foreign currency solution where you can send money into another market um, using N26 powered by TransferWise. So that's one one example. Uh, we do personal loans, we do savings, investments, we have insurance products, et cetera, et cetera. So we really started building already now this ecosystem around N26 and have started diversifying away from this monoline offering uh, that we had in the beginning. That's great. So, Siri, thinking about that future of digital banking, RFI conducts research into digital banking and consumer behavior and sentiment around that. When you think about the future of digital banking, are there any common trends that you're seeing around the globe? Three main things that we're seeing. One is biometrics really growing um, and giving this seamless experience in banking, but also in payments experience and including the security into it. Uh, number two will be the widespread adoption of messaging app, the usage of messaging app, and banks starting really to have to integrate this channel as one of the channels that banks need to offer to the customer in order to have their customer able to manage and their banking more easily. And third will be the customer becoming more and more comfortable with digital-only providers. Fantastic. And, and thinking from a global perspective, as you mentioned, Nick, N26 operates across 17 countries. The US is about to be the 18th country. So beyond those global trends that Siri's identified, how does N26 build for different consumer cultures when you're thinking about experience? What we see, especially millennials, quote unquote, is uh, user behavior on certain apps is actually fairly similar globally. Okay. So you think about Airbnb, you think about Uber, um, you think about Spotify, Netflix, WhatsApp for folks that, that use WhatsApp, um, Facebook, etc., etc. So these solutions are actually solutions that are fairly universal globally. 
and the need for a mobile-first product, or when we talk about a bank, a mobile-first bank that offers you services in real time, offers these services in a very simple manner and is personalized, is fairly global in my mm. point of view. So that's sort of what keeps N26 as an overall company together. You obviously then need to cater to some of the local behaviors and, and a big topic, for example, here in the U.S. is like um, the behavior around taking out loans, credit, having maybe lower savings on your bank account versus the average European customer. So um, you can just use services and features that we have in Europe and US more prominently that might cater to this. But the universal solution, in my opinion, is actually among these key pillars around mobile first, simplicity, real time, and personalization is somewhat globally unique. Fantastic. Nick, Siri, Thank you for your time on the podcast. Great to have you here on the Global Digital Banker and a great panel session at Lendit Fintech US as well. Thanks very much. Thank you. So I'm here with Ray from Catabat to talk about AI. So Ray, perhaps tell us a little bit about yourself, about Catabat, so that our listeners can understand about you and your experience. Great. Thanks, Ellie. Glad to be here. My name is Ray Peloso. I'm CEO of Catabat, which is a customer experience management platform um, that we sell primarily to banks and lenders globally. We're delighted to be here to talk about some of the emerging trends are. That's great, Ray. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. AI is really the big technology trend that people are talking about at the moment. But before we get into the application and impact of AI, Perhaps you can help our listeners by busting some jargon. You know, people are throwing words out there, machine learning, process automation, deep learning, transfer learning. What do all these things mean, and how does that help us frame our thinking around AI? (laughs) That's funny and a good place to start. So first of all, um, the phrase artificial intelligence is very broad, therefore not meaningful. And so we agree with you. It's buzzword, it's jargon, it almost doesn't make any sense. And so our take on it is that artificial intelligence is at the broadest level an umbrella concept under which a lot of individual specific techniques, practices, tools exist. You mentioned some of them in your question. Uh, Well, I won't answer all of them. If you think about a spectrum, We think of one end of the spectrum are things like machine learning, which are actually extensions of traditional statistical scoring, modeling techniques that have existed for decades. They just take them another step further. On the other end of the spectrum, when you think about an umbrella, are concepts like deep learning, which touch on neural networks and very complicated data environments. But the point is, AI as a concept is buzz, is jargon. You really need to drill into the specific activity underneath to get more relevance. Where do you think the industry is at just from a maturity perspective around AI? When you say industry, I think it's lending and financial services mm-hmm. really the point of the question. So there are many applications today of machine learning. It really is a complement to and a natural step from, again, traditional algorithms and scoring models that many lenders globally have used for decades. Uh, Machine learning just allows you to automate the process of tuning and improving your model versus human intervention. I think at the other end of the spectrum, deep learning, things of that sort, it's less obvious that those applications are either in play or relevant today. They may be, but it's not obvious when you scan the marketplace that those kind of techniques are active in the market today. So you mentioned credit scoring as one potential application. From a line of business or an organizational perspective, where do you see those applications coming in now? Uh, We see those two points you make as highly interrelated, so neither stand on their own. Many banks and lenders will use scoring and optimization analytic techniques to improve 
revenue or cross-sell or acquisition of customers. And then if you think about a stereotype basis, maybe operational units or back office units will focus on process automation to take out costs or automate routine tasks. And while both are true, they actually don't exist in isolation. So there's a, a significant amount of overlap that occurs between those two concepts that actually makes it all work. One last point I would make is very few use cases we see don't involve human activity and involvement. What you do is you take the routine steps out, you automate it, you improve it to improve customer experience, but there's always a human element in our experience. And it's interesting that you mention customer experience. Do you see customer experience as something that AI can add to? When you think about the hierarchy of importance, the, the highest level of importance, our view is, driving the right customer experience. For example, using automation and machine learning and artificial intelligence to present information or options in today's digital world is a very legitimate way to manage customer experience. But by the same token, that same customer may want to talk to or speak with a human being in a completely different context. And so there's really not a one-size-fits-all. And thinking about those business cases and use cases, do you see any applications either here in the U.S. or globally that kind of really excite you from a financial services perspective where AI is being deployed in a good and effective way? Yeah, there's a lot going on and there's a bit of a conundrum about it, which I'll touch on in a moment. But the quick answer is yes. Our head of international is actually here in San Francisco for LendIt. He's based out of Sydney, and he was describing um, a couple of mortgage banks in the Australian market who have actually done some really neat things around scoring and acquisition and managing and servicing mortgages in Australia. So there is a tremendous number of applications out there. The conundrum that we see is that it's actually sometimes hard for us to deconstruct is a process now being run by automation or not. And so one of the dilemmas that sometimes folks face is, is that a machine learning technique or is it just smart management? Because it's very embedded. Sometimes the work is very embedded into the experience. Wow, that's interesting. And for those organizations that are implementing or do implement artificial intelligence-based or machine learning-based technology, what do you see are going to be their key advantages versus those who perhaps don't join in this as quickly. Yeah, the sort of interrelated concepts earlier around making better decisions to drive better revenue and loyalty combined with process automation, that's where the breakouts are. So the ability of a service provider to answer that question, to do it well, to get it right the first time, is heavily dependent upon, as time goes by, process automation. So your ability to use artificial intelligence to predict what Ray is thinking about and how he wants to be serviced will matter on the one hand, but then also with so much data out there in our lifetime, just in the last Mm. five, 10 years, the, the massive increase in data means you have this opportunity to actually use these sophisticated tools that were never before available. And so you miss an opportunity to grow your franchise, acquire good customers, or put the right product in their place if you don't work on some of the machine learning or other analytic techniques. So it's clear that financial institutions should be getting on board with this technology. Do you see different challenges for, say, an incumbent bank versus a new challenger, a new fintech, in being able to sort of harness this technology and integrate it and apply it in their business? At the broadest level, what you have with traditional banks as a strength is they have a tremendous amount of data 
They've got a tremendous amount of depth of talent and human capital. You know, you have a large lender who has 30, 40 years of expertise. That is a tremendous asset that a new fintech really doesn't possess. However, they tend to have more antiquated systems. They tend to have slower cultures. They tend to have a more deliberate decision-making process. And so you have this sort of break on the potential innovation that might be available. On the other side, the fintechs almost have the exact opposite dynamic. In many cases, they don't have that rich body of data going back a very long time, but they're much more likely to make quicker decisions. They're much more likely to not be impeded by an old technology stack. So there's a real dichotomy that goes on where there's one, you know, one sector's strength is the other's weakness and vice versa. That's fascinating. Thank you very much, Ray Pelosto, CEO of Catabat. Thanks for joining the Global Digital Banking Podcast. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Thanks, Ellie. Very excited to be talking with Ankush Tiwari, who's Senior Director of Strategy for LexisNexis Risk Solutions. We're going to be talking all about financial inclusion. Thank you, Ellie. I'm excited to be here as well. I'm based in RFI's Asia-Pacific Regional Hub in Singapore. I spend a lot of time traveling around the region, especially in ASEAN. We've currently at RFI got three studies into the underbanked and unbanked live in Thailand, Philippines and Vietnam. So I'm very excited about financial inclusion in my region. However, you look at financial inclusion in the US, which is completely foreign to me, and for many of our listeners outside North America, it may come as a surprise that there are financially excluded people in the wealthiest nation in the world. Can you please give us a summary of what the US looks like from the perspective of financial inclusion? Absolutely. So it might surprise listeners to hear that even in the US, a financially developed market there are 53 million consumers who we would consider financially excluded. So those are people that do not have enough information at a traditional credit bureau to create a credit score. And the lack of traditional credit history makes it very difficult for them to rent an apartment, get a job, and of course, you know, get access to credit, which they may need. Typically, these consumers are lower income. Uh, they're younger, but there really is a range of people that, you know, all the way up into their 40s before they really develop enough information at a credit bureau. But I think one of the things we see that they have in common is that they have inconsistent income streams. They may have difficulty staying in one place uh, for a very long time. And so you really need to look at different types of data if you are to actually bring them into the traditional banking and financial system. Otherwise, you know, they, they depend on alternative lenders, they depend on check cashing services or money services business to kind of get by. Uh, and those businesses can charge very, very high interest rates. And frankly, we think that getting them into traditional financial systems is better. Thanks for that summary. It's, it is really a fascinating area. To further explore this topic for our listeners, I thought it might be interesting to use the World Bank's universal financial access framework for their goals, which are focused on including one billion people in financial services who largely live in the global south. So the first thing that the World Bank talk about is growing financial literacy. How does that apply to the US? Is, is this a challenge for underserved customers in the US? Yeah, very much so. So... Uh, it is really important for people to understand how to properly get access to and then use financial services. You know, that goes beyond just understanding your credit report. That, under, that means it 
goes to budgeting, goes to how to plan for future events and emergencies, and then how to understand credit. How is it issued? What are the characteristics that are required to get credit? And then we've undertaken some efforts also to have an explanation for consumers for alternative data, data that is not found on a traditional credit report, but that is used to give people without credit history access to credit. So we've partnered with a few nonprofits in the US to actually help them educate consumers. And then there are lenders who use our products for, for, uh, for credit risk decisioning that have programs to explain to consumers how to improve their finances and how to better understand how the banking system works. Uh, one example of that is uh, one of our customers is called Connecta Federal Credit Union based in Los Angeles. And they have a fantastic program to help people get out of payday loan debt. So they actually can take out uh, one consolidation loan to get out of multiple payday loans. And as part of that program, Connecta also provides free financial education to them. That's fantastic. What a great case study there. So you mentioned about different kinds of data other than traditional credit scoring. Can you just share a little bit about what that looks like? What kind of data? Where does it come from? What works outside of those traditional data areas for credit scoring? Sure. So uh, with regard to our data, uh, most of our data comes from public records. So we have data on address history, on court records, on professional licenses. So if someone is a plumber or an electrician and they have a, a state license to do that, we can we have that on record. You know, we have uh, data on very small businesses. So if someone is associated with a small business, you can think of uh, an immigrant who's a painter and has a painting business, yeah. they're trying to get established. We would be able to show that at the Secretary of State's office that person has an established business and he's the principal of that business. So it becomes a very powerful predictor of creditworthiness and ability to repay and stability and things like that. There are also other data sources that people think of as alternative data, such as rent payment and utility bill payment. Yeah. Uh, and those are just evidence that someone has, you know, repeatedly paid yeah, a, an obligation, yeah. right? Uh, so all of these types of things are not, most of these, you know, these things are not on any credit report. Mm. But for people that are underbanked, they can be quite valuable in helping them get access to credit. That, that's very, very interesting. Thinking that's about sort of the consumer and their role to play in their data and so on, but more about some of the other things that the World Bank talks about. One thing that they used to drive financial inclusion is to work with governments around government programs, government disbursements. I'm assuming that given the state of welfare in in the US, that's perhaps not something that applies here in the same way that we've seen in Egypt that government disbursements are now on a debit card, which is you know fantastic and has really scaled up financial inclusion in the Egyptian market. Do you see a role for government to play? Is there anything active here in the US that's helping, for example, move disbursement payments onto cards or into traditional transaction accounts? Yeah, I think there is a movement towards that. I know that uh, some government disbursements are paid out on cards rather than paper checks. I know that, for example, there is uh, some action in the House uh, last year, uh, the House of uh, Representatives, that passed the Credit Access and Inclusion Act of yeah. 2017, which part of it actually amends the Fair Credit Reporting Act to include rental payments made to public housing mm -hmm. uh, to contribute to a person's credit report. Right. So for example, people who live in public housing and are paying a subsidized rent can have that rent 
uh, included as part of a credit report to show some you know, history of making that payment consistently, and that could help many millions of people uh, actually get access to credit. So I think in these very specific, limited ways, the U.S. government is helping. Uh, certainly, I think there's scope to do more. Yeah, thanks for that. One of the things under the Universal Financial Access Plan for those developing markets that's seen as very important is improving ICT and financial infrastructure so it's easier for people to get access to banking services across Asia. One of the key problems for people is that getting to a branch is just not feasible. Um, So telco infrastructure financial infrastructure, online banking, mobile banking, all these things are really critical across the Asia region, obviously a diverse region, but across that region. An advanced economy here in the US with good infrastructure, but are there still roadblocks to people being able to access banking? And is there a role for improving that infrastructure in some way? There absolutely is. I think digital banking for sure has been a huge help Um, I think there's a lot of innovation going on. Personally, I hate going to a bank branch, so I do all of my banking on an app and remote deposit capture and things like that uh, certainly help. But I think there's more to be done because there are services that you need a branch for. Um, And I think there's evidence that there are credit deserts. uh, So especially in inner cities, um, there are vast swaths of inner cities where you don't see bank branches. You see plenty of payday lenders. You see plenty of check cashers. Um, remittance providers, things like that, which are important services, but you're not seeing a whole lot of bank branches. And wow. even in Silicon Last Valley, place you think of it. That's right, right. but uh, they exist here as well. Mm. Uh, you know, it's, I think it's important to remember that Silicon Valley is certainly the source of you know great companies, great technology, and great wealth. But it's a pretty diverse area, and there are many people without means that live in this area as well. So another one on that topic, another one of the pillars around financial inclusion for the World Bank is about that public and private sector commitment to actually solving this problem. There was an announcement by PayPal today that they're launching a debit card for the unbanked here in the US, which is you know, a fantastic initiative. So that's one thing just today that's been announced and that, that we're seeing. But overall, thinking about the way that banks are approaching this, thinking about other financial institutions, thinking about policymakers. Do you see the right level of commitment here? I think I do. I mean, I think that there's certainly interest from many, many sectors, uh, commercial and public sectors, in you know helping the plight of the underbanked. Uh, I've been involved for seven years uh, at Lexis with different institutions, uh, nonprofits that are convened, you know, there's, there's groups of meetings that are that bring together companies like us, banks, fintechs, innovators, and we specifically discuss right, innovation to help underbanked, underserved people get access to financial services, uh, not just any services, but services that actually improve their financial health overall. Yep. So, uh, you know, a service that uh, basically keeps someone in a cycle of debt is not a service that necessarily Uh, is healthy for the consumer, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to be able to give them access to a type of credit that actually helps them get up the economic ladder. That's great. I know we've touched upon some of the government policies and things, but overall, from a legal and regulatory framework perspective, do you think there are any gaps in that here in the US? Do you think there's work to be done around that? or Or is that legal and regulatory framework sufficient at the moment? Uh, In my view, I mean, we have laws and regulations in place in the U.S. that govern access to credit. The Fair Credit Reporting Act and the Equal Credit Opportunity Act are the two key pillars of that. 
And they do two very good things, right? First is they set up protections for consumers on what data can be used, how it can be used. Uh, they give consumers rights to access that data, to make corrections to that data. And it uh, effectively prohibits any sort of discrimination based on, you know, protected class information like race, you know, sex, country of origin, things like that. Yeah. So it prevents lenders from using any of that data in a manner that might you know, discriminate. That's one very good thing, right? That's consumer protection. The other effect of that is for companies like us and for banks, it gives us a very solid sandbox, if you will, right, yeah. in which to play. We know the boundaries. They're yeah. well established. There's laws and case, case law that governs how the data can be used. Thank you. I think we've covered off all the mm. main pillars around <laughs> the, the World Bank's framework at some detail, which is great. So to wrap up this interview, a bit of a blue sky question, I guess. If there were just one thing that could change or that could be activated in the US market to help drive financial inclusion, what would that thing be on your wish list if there is one? Yeah, there, I mean, there's probably several things, but I'd say one of the more interesting uh, innovations that's happening now is really using machine learning to build credit risk scoring models. So in the past, there has been a lot of hesitation uh, to use machine learned models because of kind of the black box feature of machine learning, right? Mm. So in the U.S., under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, um, you have to have line of sight from a adverse action decision. You know, if you decline someone for yeah. credit, there has to be a line of sight directly to a something in the consumer report that was the reason why uh, we declined you, right? Yeah. So, in machine learning, you know, in, in the old way of doing things, that may not be very clear. Yeah. But today, uh, there are technologies and innovations in machine learned credit scores that allow scores to come back to a specific data source, a specific piece of data that says this is why you know, your score was reduced. And that helps a lot for, uh, for banks to comply with uh, the OCC scoring uh, regulations, mm-hmm. yeah. model governance regulations, the transparency of a model. Overall, it helps consumers because those models are much, much more predictive. Yeah. And so what we've seen is that using machine learning techniques and alternative data, uh, you can actually approve consumers who would have otherwise been declined but those consumers, once approved, are going to behave just like prime consumers with high credit scores. And so it really does open up access. So I think uh, the more uh, machine learned models are adopted and accepted, I think we'll see more financial inclusion as well. Fantastic. And that's a great application and use case for AI or machine learning, which is the hot topic, certainly at this event here in San Francisco. And thank you very much for joining me here. Thank you for joining the Global Digital Banker podcast, Ankush. Um, It's been a real pleasure chatting. Well, thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed the episode this week. To view the show notes from this episode, head to globaldigitalbanker.com. Check us out on Instagram, Global Digital Banker, Twitter at GDB Podcast, or on Facebook under Global Digital Banker Podcast. If you're interested in being a part of the show or would like to let us know what you think of this episode, email us at gdbpodcast at rfigroup.com.